we, um, if you're visiting with us today, you are extremely welcome. Our practice is to always take some time to have a look at part of the Bible. How does God talk about himself and about us in his word to us? And that's what we're going to do now. We've been for a number of weeks in a, what we've called a stewardship series. And our goal through this series has been to help us to understand and to own our God-given mandate to care for or steward those things that he's given us to look after. And we've looked at things like work and rest. We've looked at time, talents, and treasure. We've looked at the mind and the body. In the next two weeks, we're going to look at the earth and the climate. Last week, we looked at the beginning of life. And today, we're going to look at the end of life, considering our own and caring for others. I'm very conscious that this will be a sensitive subject. In one sense, for all of us, but for some, for all manner of reasons, especially so. And you might wonder, hang on, we've just been rejoicing with baptisms, and <laughs> now you're going to help us to think about the end of life. Well, here's the reality. Life is full of beginnings and endings. So last week, we looked at the ultimate beginning, the beginning of life. And today, we're looking at the ultimate end, the end of life. Let's pray quickly. Father, we thank you for life, and we love it when we see new life, new physical life and new spiritual life. We've loved it this morning. And Lord, we ask you, please, for grace and compassion and truth as we address an inevitably complex and difficult subject and can't say everything, but we must look at. Holy Spirit, you are here. We trust your help as we look at this. Amen. I'm going to dive right in. The Office of National Statistics said that in 2020, there were almost 700,000 deaths in the UK, which is roughly 80 per hour. After COVID in 2020, the leading causes of death in the UK were dementia and Alzheimer's, heart disease, stroke, and lung cancer. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have this funny feeling that the British, I know many of us are not originally British at least, but I, I know, I have this feeling that the British have a strange relationship with death. We're either at a very detached level, are over-familiar with it. You can watch all sorts of movies, um, crime dramas, and death happens all the time, it seems. We're very detached. Video games, I wonder how many of you play games where you're killing people. We're over-familiar but detached from it. Or, on the other hand, we can be terrified of it and very distant from it. Perhaps that is partly because while 200 years ago, just 200 years ago, life expectancy was 40, 40, and just 100 years ago it was 49, today it's just over 80. That's an extraordinary change in our society. Compared to the rest of history, Death is very distant. It is later, it is slower, 
and it's a stranger to most of us. Death has become very distant, you see. Death can be consigned for almost everybody. Well, it's a long way off. I need not pay any attention to it. We assume that medical science can avert it anyway, and it's largely separated from everyday life because care for the elderly, the severely ill, the dying, is outsourced these days to health professionals, mostly. Whereas families once used to live and die in very close proximity to one another, now people, when they're young, often move away, and then when they are unable to care for themselves, they often move into professional care. Death has become very distant from our regular, everyday existence. Anyway, death is coming, and it won't help us to avoid that fact. Just as we need to learn how to live well, we need to learn and be taught how to die well. One writer said, whatever the church does, it should prepare its members to face death and meet God. We're going to read a few verses from a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes in a moment. A different part of Ecclesiastes makes this pretty shocking statement. It says, it is better, this wise writer says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. One writer, Eugene Peterson, wrote about visiting a monastery. While in, on the way to the refectory for lunch, he and the monks he was visiting walked past a graveyard with an open grave. He asked one of the monks which member of the community had died recently, and he was told, nobody. That grave is for the next one. Every day, three times a day, as they walk to eat, the members of the community are reminded of what we spend our entire waking hours trying to forget. One of them will be next. After taking a funeral, one of the funerals I took last year of a member of this church, I was sat around while we were having some food with some of those who'd been guests at that funeral. And the conversation went, or someone raised exactly that question. They said, I wonder which one of us will be next. So while you and I are, of course, living... The undeniable fact is that we are dying too. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not necessarily death itself that worries me. It's the process of dying that can be pretty concerning. Woody Allen famously said, I don't mind the thought of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I think there are various fears attached to that. The fear of pain, the fear of decline, the fear of serious illness, perhaps the fear of dying alone and the fear of leaving people behind. Now, we're going to read a few verses from Ecclesiastes. It's a very challenging book, yet there are notes of hope and ultimate wisdom in it, as we'll find in the end. Its message, though, essentially reads like this. Everything is meaningless. There's no point in anything. Everything is fleeting, worthless, futile. It's all vanity. Everything in your life is just a vapor drifting on the wind soon to disappear. Unless. 
but we'll get to that a bit later. The words will come up on the screen. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Back to verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. So as we own our responsibility to care for ourselves and one another, what does it mean to steward the end of life? I'm going to give you four things. Here's the first. Caring for the elderly and the dying. There is no question, as one in a modest sense who is getting a little bit older, that getting older is not all fun. Some of it may be, but not all of it. And for many, for some here, there's a growing awareness that the passage of time is impacting on our bodies and our minds in unwelcome ways. Some of you will have much more serious ways, but I've noticed of late a little bit of arthritis coming in one finger. I've noticed my elbow is kind of strange all the time. I've had to have some skin checks at the doctor. My back has been aching a lot. My memory definitely isn't what it was. And some of you will have much more serious things. John Wagner says this, everything slows down with age except the time it takes cake and ice cream to reach your hips. <laughs> and Sir Norman Wisdom said, as you get older, there are three things that happen. The first is your memory goes, and I can't remember the other two. <laughs> and the way, I think the way that older age is viewed in this particular society it's very different from how it was historically viewed, some of which I've commented on, and still is viewed in many other parts of the world. While the elderly in our nation can tragically feel some sense of being a burden, many Eastern societies honor and protect and value their older folk. For example, in China, it is a legal requirement to respect the elderly. It's enshrined in their law. In Vietnam, for example, older people are considered the carriers of knowledge, tradition, and wisdom. Being older in Vietnam is considered an asset, not a liability. But how a society treats its older folk as well as other vulnerable sectors of society tells you a lot about that society. Even in our Nation recently, a 1.25% tax, the health and social care levy, has been added to pay for future care. Such is our population living longer. As a Christian, I'd like to introduce this. Not just a tax 
because we're all living longer, I would like to introduce a greater respect and value and dignity for every older person who is still created in the image of God as they journey towards their death. Which is a journey, of course, that everybody experiences differently. Different illnesses, different ways of dying, different individual wishes regarding their death. Different families. Some families are very open about death. Some are very, very closed. You would never talk about it. Different ways that families want to say goodbye. I heard recently of one family who gathered everybody together and had an absolute laugh to say goodbye to this loved relative. There were different cultures. I visited an Indian family in this church who lost a 19-year-old daughter just a few months ago, held her funeral here. When I visited them on the evening that I got the message to say that she had died, I went round and I was encountered by a houseful of people. I was amazed. I thought it was actually wonderful. They said they'd had 60 people through the house that day. And culturally, that's so different to our nation. I said, it's so fascinating to see in our nation, you would be very careful not to intrude on someone's grief. In their culture, which has got a lot going for it, why would you leave someone in their grief? Surely you would gather around them. Some deaths are very peaceful. In fact, most deaths at the end are very peaceful. But some are very traumatic. Some are very sudden, but most are anticipated for months. In fact, these days, for years. And tragically, of course, it's not just the elderly who die. Jackie and I had our first son at the same time that our best friends had their first daughter. She was born with heart trouble, trouble after trouble, surgery after surgery. She was blue-lighted down to Great Ormond Street one day, stayed there for a week. She died. It was utterly horrific. Family in my previous church in Torquay, they had a child who was born and died within a few days. Another lady from Torquay died at the age of 25, newly married. See, in 2020, in the UK, of the 600,000 deaths, 3,000 of those were children aged 0 to 15. And see, on the journey to death as well, there are very complex questions, all sorts of emotions and complex questions, things like this about care and treatment, when to apply or withdraw aggressive treatment, the do not resuscitate question that my my parents faced just a few weeks ago when my dad was in hospital, looked like he could be seriously having a problem. They had to ask that question. Questions of housing, questions of where to die. Many more people are dying at home these days and all sorts of things. May I suggest you two things as you care for those who are elderly or dying. If you have, as many of us have, an elderly friend or relative, or if you have a younger friend or relative who is dying, stay in touch. Do not let your awkwardness over what do I do or say keep you away from them. Stay in touch. Visit. Send a card. Send a message. Make the phone call. Show them that they matter. Stay involved. And as a church family, here's my advice. 
that we be relatively open about this. And that we will always be happy to pray for healing. God heals. God is a miracle-working God. But in the end, everyone is a case of non-healing in this life. And so we must have more than prayer for healing. We must have compassion and capacity to love and support each other towards what people, Christians, used to call a good death. A good death meant in confidence in their faith and in community. Let's work hard to support and love those who are older and those who may be dying. Secondly, supporting the bereaved. Supporting the bereaved. Now, life is interspersed with loss, from small, almost irrelevant losses to the ultimate loss of bereavement. And from many conversations that I've had with people who've been bereaved, it's clear to me that death brings with it experiences that are common to almost everybody. Things like this, you could anticipate them. There's the funeral to prepare. There's loneliness, perhaps. There are regrets that people face. There's the thought that nothing is quite ever going to be the same again. There's the need in time to work out what does life look like now for me. And yet it's perhaps the things you can't anticipate that strike equally, if not harder. In the case of those I've spoken to, it's included things like this, to do with a spouse dying. Things like this, coming to church without your spouse can be incredibly daunting. Learning how to relate to people again as a widow or widower, not as part of a couple. Missing the small talk, the pointless comments almost that you just got used to having, the look in someone's eye and you just knew what was going on. Visiting familiar places alone can be extremely painful. Memories are everywhere. Triggers of thoughts are literally all around. Hopes and dreams might be dashed. Missing out. There's the paperwork, so much paperwork or computer work to do once someone has died. The awkward things people say. One tip from somebody was this, simply... If you don't know what to say, just say, I'm so sorry. The prospect in their case is of aging alone now. Difficult memories, especially when it was a traumatic end, and coping with the awkwardness that people sometimes feel around you. Let me tell you, those who've been bereaved need massive support and care and sensitivity. And for those bereaved during lockdown, which has been an enormous issue, so much extra stress and complication was added to their journey of grief. And it can just be so hard to get up and carry on when, as someone said to me just recently, it felt like half of me had been ripped away. Nancy Guthrie is an author and speaker in the United States. She had four children. Two of them only lived to six months. She wrote of her 
pain and her experiences. She wrote this, when you've lost a member of your family, even the best of times are painfully incomplete. Someone is missing. Even the best days and the happiest events are tinged with sadness. Everywhere you go, the sadness goes with you. And then there's the funeral to consider, of which I've taken 30 now. While there are comfort to some, a funeral can be hugely difficult, especially in a British culture where we're trained to keep it all together and engage in polite chit-chat when we'd rather not be there. How do you support someone who's bereaved? Well, there are all sorts of things to say. I want to simply say this. Mainly by your presence and by small touches of kindness. Joseph Bailey had seven children, three of whom died at a young age. One son died aged just 18 days after surgery, another at five years from leukemia, a third at 18 years from a sledging accident. And he wrote a book called The View from the Hearse. And in it, he writes this. He says, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he would go away. He finally did. Another came and just sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Those who are bereaved need our support and patience way beyond the initial stage too. As they process their loss and the stages of grief. You may have heard of the stages of grief before. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Not necessarily in that order exactly, but waves of each of those. Depending on the depth of your relationship with the bereaved person, give them some time. Offer some practical help. Make an effort to remember things. On my desk upstairs, I've got the dates of the five people who died in this church last year whose funerals I took, and I want to make sure I don't forget the first anniversary of those deaths. A couple of them, I messaged them on Christmas Day because I knew it would be really difficult. Do your best to remember. Offer a walk. Ask simple questions. Send occasional messages. Tell them you're praying, but whatever way it is, be there. Just be there and allow them to process their faith in the context of their loss. Nancy Guthrie, again, talks of having to rethink her theology, how she understood Bible stories and what it meant to sing hymns in church. She said this, I sang all of those church songs in church now through the lens of my loss. Things I had sung so easily in church that didn't cost me anything to say, now they did. Saying things to God like, forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand, and all that you do is good. She said, it wasn't necessarily doubt, but I had new things to process in my faith. 
Please let's work hard to be present, to support, to comfort, and stay close to those who've been bereaved in ways that are appropriate to the depth of your relationship with that person. Thirdly, the very challenging matter of assisted suicide and euthanasia. I would say there's a very, this is a hugely complex, and I'm not going to able get into it all, of course. I'd say there's a very great difference between the removal of treatment that has run its course and the active promotion of a death. There are two basic forms of assisted doctor-assisted dying, both of which are currently illegal in this country and most countries. Assisted suicide involves the doctor prescribing a high-dose medication for the patient to then administer at the time of their choosing. The doctor is assisting, assisted suicide. The other is euthanasia, which involves the doctor both prescribing and administering the medication, usually a lethal injection. Arguments in favor of assisted suicide and euthanasia run some of these. Respect for the person's autonomy and dignity, the right for an individual to choose their own time and way of dying. Relief of suffering in extreme cases, those rare but really harrowing cases that we occasionally see presented on the TV. The argument that keeping it illegal in this country forces people to endure the added burden of having to travel to a foreign place. And people say that with good legislation, this can be appropriately regulated and kept safe from abuse. Now, as a Christian, I instinctively am uneasy about both of those things. But let me tell you, I watched a film once, it was a secular film, about this lady who was a boxer. This trainer took, I think it was Clint Eastwood, who took her on, trained her to box, got her up through the ranks, got her a heavyweight fight. During that fight, in between one of the rounds, the opponent illegally knocked her over and she whacked her head on, on the stool in the corner and from that moment was a quadriplegic. She could move Nothing. She went in the hospital. Her family came to see her. It was a tragic situation. Her family came to see her just to see what money they could make out of her. She scurried them out. And she lay there day after day after day, pleading with her trainer to give her a lethal injection. It was harrowing to watch because it reflects certain cases that are going on in our country and around the world. This person could now do nothing. And she was desperate to end her life. She tried to. And in the end, she persuaded her trainer to come in with a lethal injection and put her to sleep forever. I mention that not because I have suddenly switched and I'm pro-assisted suicide and euthanasia, but because compassion is needed and understanding is necessary that Christians don't just give a quick blank answer. But arguments against assisted suicide and euthanasia include these crucial points. Is it the start of a slippery slope? The law is meant to preserve life, 
not to end it. There's significant concern about pressure on those who feel they are a burden to end their lives. CARE, a Christian organization who campaigned for things very healthily, I read this on their website. If assisted suicide becomes an option for patients, the right to die could become a duty to die for those who feel they are a burden on other people. This is evidence, they say, in Oregon, in the United States, where 55%, I don't know the details of the survey, but 55% of those requesting suicide in that assisted suicide in that state cited fear of being a burden as influencing their decision. This is why all major disability rights groups in Britain oppose any change in the law, and rightly so, arguing that it will lead to increased prejudice and pressure to end their lives. It should also be added that in most cases, almost all cases, as Dame Cicely Saunders, who founded the hospice movement, said, you don't have to kill the patient in order to kill the pain. Though I know there are some even more complex cases. As a Christian, my personal belief and view is that the time to be born and the time to die are in God's hands. In one sense, to say there's a time to be born and a time to die is merely to state the obvious. But it's more than that because it's a recognition of God's sovereignty over the time of our birth and our death. We believe that there isn't simply a time to die, but that God is in control of our time to die. It's dangerous for us to impose ourselves on his timing. For all of those reasons, I submit to you that we should be campaigning and seeking to protect our legal, current legal position where assisted suicide and euthanasia are illegal. I appreciate this is not the lightest sermon this morning. But finally, Jesus transforms death. And make no mistake, death is an enemy. Death is an enemy theologically. It's called the last enemy in one of Paul's writings. And death is an enemy emotionally. Philip Yancey, a famous Christian writer, said, I attended the funeral of a child in Chicago. Those are the toughest funerals. I attended the funeral of a child in Chicago in which the pastor shocked the mourners by glancing down at the coffin and interrupting his eulogy, presumably off the cuff, with the sudden explanation, exclamation, damn you, death! And at the very heart of the Christian faith is a different four-letter word, hope. Because Jesus transforms death from an enemy to an entrance, from a dead end to a doorway. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. No one says we should look forward to dying, but the fear of death has been broken by Jesus. Why? Because the Christian 
is one for whom death doesn't win, for whom death and its sting has been removed. Paul writes, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? No one saying glibly as a Christian, don't worry, death doesn't matter, it's all going to be okay. No one saying that. If anyone says that to you, they haven't experienced much around death. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed, but it has been broken in Jesus' name and by his death and resurrection. The Christian's sure and certain hope is both that God is in control and he will give grace to his children to see them safely home to a new life of presence and absence. The presence of Jesus fully experienced and the absence of suffering and pain. Death is not the end. One blustery Sunday afternoon, Joe Bailey writes, in February, I spoke at a service in a convalescent home near Chester, Pennsylvania. Men and women were in wheelchairs. Some listened from their beds in adjoining rooms. Several of the patients were in their 90s. One lady was almost 100. She was weeping before the service began. As I leaned over to speak to her, she whispered, I'm afraid to die. When I spoke to the group, I asked a question. If I could promise, if I could promise to take you from this home to a beautiful spring-like place where you would be forever free from all your aches and pains, where you could walk and even run, hear and see, and never have any more loneliness or sorrow ever again, but if I had to take you through a dark tunnel to get there, how many of you would want to go? My question was rhetorical, but almost all of those dear old people raised their hands. Death is that tunnel, I explained. It is not to be feared if we trust Jesus, for he will take us through it to heaven. I said that Ecclesiastes is a challenging book. Everything is meaningless, fleeting, worthless, futile, vanity. You're just a vapor disappearing on the wind. Unless... Unless God, unless eternity with him. And so Ecclesiastes ends with these verses. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He's saying life is utterly meaningless. Why? Because you're going to die. But it's not meaningless if God is waiting to meet you and count you righteous in Christ and welcome you home. It is a glorious message that the Christian faith has. And far from being morbid, one writer says about Ecclesiastes that it teaches us to live life backward. Ecclesiastes encourages us to take the one thing that is certain in our future, death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of that end. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. Jackie and I lived in Bedford for most of 10 years, a long time ago, and we had... Loads of good friends there. One couple were called Ron and Sue Lee. They were lovely. He was hilarious. And he developed stomach cancer 
I don't know, 15, 20 years, 15 years ago at least, the size of a rugby ball they found in him. They operated, cleared it out, he seemed to be fine. He was fine. But then he began to decline in the last few years. In October, a year and a half ago, I knew he didn't have long left. I went to visit him in Bedford. It's always, I've done it a few times, it's interesting when you know you're seeing someone for the last time. It's a very poignant moment. And I went to see him, chatted a bit, he didn't have much strength. I stayed an hour, I left and came home. And I say goodbye, and I remember looking, as I've done with others, and turning and saying, I'm never going to see you again until that day. His funeral service happened during COVID, so I couldn't go. And on the funeral service sheet was something he said to a friend not too long before he died. He'd said this, For me, this is a win-win. I wake and I see Sue's face, or I wake and I see Jesus' face. Either way, I win. That's so profound. That is the hope in the Christian faith. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you've been watching in, just wondering what's happening here, I've come to see a friend or just turned up, let me tell you, there is nothing like the hope in the Christian faith. Life is not meaningless. You matter. God knows you. God loves you. God created you. He sent the day of your birth and he knows you till the day of your death. There is hope of life eternal in a newly created heaven on the new earth that awaits every single Christian. That's what I call real hope. Now as I wrap up here, I'm really aware that this affects everybody in different ways. So I'm going to give us a few moments just to sit, maybe to close your eyes, and just ponder, because different things will have struck different ones. If you'd like to know what you could read to think about death, I've read three books in the last year. It's been very helpful. You might need a chat with someone. You might want to, if you don't have someone you can talk to about it, you might want to speak to someone here in the church. You can email in to pastoral at citygate.church and we will find someone lovely to chat things through with you. But let's, let's just take a few moments and be quiet with our thoughts. The reality of death, those of you who are caring for others who are suffering and dying, the beauty of the Christian hope.